Well, good evening. It's good to be with you all to worship together, to remember, if I can ever have an easy time with one of these, hasn't happened yet. Um, it's good to be here to worship with you all, to remember that we are all part of the same church of Jesus Christ, the church that he purchased with his blood, the church of redeemed sinners. Our first sermon this evening is going to cover the doctrine of total depravity. Now, I will apologize to uh, Pastor AJ to start off that I'm going to touch on a little bit of irresistible grace during the sermon, but the Synod of Dort did too, so you can't get uh, on me too bad for that. Uh, if you would, please uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 together. Uh, as you're turning there, let me pray that the Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what God has to say to his church this evening. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. These words are the words of eternal life, and we long to hear them. So we simply ask for you to speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. In the name of the Word made flesh, Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen. We believe that this is the inerrant word of the one and only true and living God. It is the only infallible rule for our faith and its practice. So hear now the word of our God from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever tried to do something that you knew was going to be truly difficult? Now, I don't just mean hard. I don't just mean annoying. I mean something that you knew was going to take every ounce of your mental focus to stay locked on that goal 
for as long as it would take. That it was going to take every ounce of energy that you could muster to keep going until you reached that goal. It was going to take every ounce of strength that you had in order to be able to get across the finish line. I would imagine that everyone who has ever attempted such a monumental task has a moment where they think to themselves, this isn't worth it. And for Inigo Montoya, that moment was probably when he was carrying the Dread Pirate Roberts through the woods. You see, the Dread Pirate Roberts was dead, and that was a problem. Inigo had spent years fantasizing about the day when he could confront the man with six fingers that had murdered his father and say to him, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. The Dread Pirate Roberts was his way into the castle where the man with six fingers was, but the Dread Pirate Roberts was now dead, and so they needed a miracle. Thankfully, this particular kingdom did have a man who specialized in miracles. Conveniently enough, his name was Miracle Max. When they arrived at Miracle Max's house, he explained to them, your friend is not dead, he is only mostly dead. And if he is mostly dead, then he is a little alive. Now, far be it for me to be too critical of a fictional character, but I do believe there is a reason why the king's stinking son fired Miracle Max. Because there is no such thing as mostly dead. You can no more be mostly dead than my wife could be mostly pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Paul, in our text this evening, says you were dead. Now, I don't want to get into too much of a linguistic discussion here, but the Greek word that the ESV translates as dead means dead. It means what it says. Now, the student of scripture that hears Paul say that should be reminded of the first time that death is mentioned in scripture. Mankind was created, as the canons of Dort say, after the image of God. And man's understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. And this holy and pure man with saving knowledge of his creator, with his heart and will upright, was told by God... You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will die, die. You're going to be like super dead on the day that you eat of that tree. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 2.1 is that God's word was true. That when Adam rebelled against God and ate of the forbidden fruit, he did die. Because sin itself is death. You cannot have sin without it. And yet, though this is the nature of sin, and though we all know that this is the nature of sin, we love it. That's why in verse 3, Paul says 
that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. People of God, this is our nature outside of Christ. Every human being that has ever lived has known what God requires and yet loves to do contrary to it. Every human being has been born dead in sin. Not only are we dead in sin, we are bound by sin. For though our flesh would tell us that sin is freedom, it is actually slavery. We are bound by the, uh, the course of this world. We are bound by the desires of our flesh. And we serve the prince of the power of the air. Outside of Christ, of course. And we are all, as we come into this world, born children of wrath. Once again, this is how the Canons of Dort put it. It says, But man, revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and by his own free will, forfeited these excellent gifts, and in the place thereof became involved in blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment. He became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. Man after the fall begat children in his own likeness. A corrupt stock produced a corrupt offspring. Hence all the posterity of Adam, Christ only accepted, have derived corruption from their original parent. Not by imitation, as the Pelagians of old asserted, but by the propagation of a vicious nature in consequence of the just judgment of God. Therefore, all men, are conceived in sin, and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation." This is the state of man in sin apart from Christ. This is the state that all of our children are born into. This is the state of sin and misery that every human being that has ever lived after the fall has been in. But God. Those are like the best parts in all of Scripture. Right When Paul has spent three whole verses laying out just exactly how bad this is. There is no hope. There is nothing you can do. There is no way you can fix this but God. Paul shows us God's nature in these verses. He says that he is rich in mercy. He is great in love. He gives immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. He shows us God's action. That God is the one actually acting in these verses. Mankind does nothing because mankind is dead. 
It had to be God's action because of the state of man in sin. And that is why there is no ground of boasting. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For Christians, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, though we had rebelled against your holy law, though we deserved nothing but your wrath and curse, yet it pleased you through Christ to save a people for your glory. We praise and magnify your name always through Christ our Savior. Amen. Okay, I have a lengthy text, so let's get to it. It's Romans 9, verses 1 through 24, if you'd follow along in a copy of God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So far, our reading tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that spirit who spoke through the Apostle Paul that we might have heaven-sent words of life. We pray that the same Holy Spirit would be here now at work ministering your word to us, convincing, converting, sanctifying, edifying, and causing us to say and believe things that are right about you. We ask your guidance, we ask your lights, we ask your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, the second doctrine of grace is unconditional election. Actually, I think it's the first. In the canons of Dort, it was ultip, but that doesn't roll off the tongue quite like tulip. So here we are in second place with unconditional election. And getting right into that concept, what does election mean? Well, even our kids know that to elect someone is to choose them, to pick them for something. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ right now, the ultimate reason why that is so is God made an eternal decision or choice of you for salvation. The fact that God chooses us doesn't negate the fact that we choose God, but the question at stake here in the doctrines of grace and in the debate of history that precedes the doctrine of grace is the question who goes first, whose decision is determinative, who gets the credits? The truth is that we choose God because he first chose us just as we love God because he first loved us. Now, in Scripture, you'll sometimes also see, besides election, the term predestination. Uh, Technically, predestination is a broader term. It refers to God's determining all things in advance by his will, whatsoever comes to pass, to borrow from our catechism. And election, uh, to be technical, speaks specifically of that predestining choice when it's applied to the salvation of individuals. Here's how the canons of Dort uh, refer to election. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby, before the foundation of the world, he has, out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ." So the canons, you see, are rightly deriving from Scripture that God did not go through some mass of poor, innocent humans and pick out a few for destruction. Rather, God considered humans as fallen, as the canons say, uh, at fault or in a state of sin, and he picks out some for salvation, as Westminster says, passing by the rest. These people chosen by God are described variously in the Bible. Uh, In Revelation 13, they are those whose name has been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. 
In John chapter 10, Jesus describes the chosen ones as those sheep who will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These are the ones whom my Father has given to me. Now, with all these doctrines of grace, the point of contention is the adjective. Unconditional election is what we're talking about here tonight. And that means there are no conditions, and God's choosing you for salvation in Christ. There are no conditions that are met by you first. God did not go through a stack of resumes to pick the best and brightest and worthiest, the most faithful, the most insightful. In fact, there are passages like Deuteronomy 7. Uh, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which seemed to say the opposite, that there were not many noble, not many wise. It was not because you were so important or more numerous than the other peoples of the world. No, he chose you, as the scriptures say, out of his own good pleasure, as an act of his will, without input from us. Or as our text puts it in verse 11, before these children that are being referred to had been born, had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. So this is a reference then back to the Old Testament where Jacob and Esau are going to be born. God chooses the one and rejects the other. Contrary to the natural order, the older will serve the younger. And this is not because one of them did good or bad relative to the other. On the contrary, it's in order that God's purpose of election might stand. And as Paul continues to argue a few verses later, it depends then not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All through our passage tonight, Paul is laboring to make this point about unconditionality, that you didn't contribute, you didn't decide, you didn't deserve. Jacob's superiority had nothing to do with it. In fact, the way Genesis reads to me, Esau seems to be the more admirable character. And yet in God's purpose of election, one was chosen and the other not. Why? Well, the ESV says God's purpose. The King James says God's good pleasure. But you can't get behind God's purpose and pleasure. You can't get behind God's decision to love somebody. He loves you out of his heart. He loves you out of his will. He loves you out of all eternity, believer in Christ, without any deeper explanation than that. In fact, if you read passages like Deuteronomy 7 and Isaiah 43 closely, you will find they boil down to what logical philosophers call a tautology. He loved you because he loved you. So this is unconditional election. It is supported by the arguments and by the histories of Scripture. It is uh, necessitated by what we just heard from Brother Jonathan about human depravity, our inability and unworthiness. And it fits generally the idea that God is absolutely sovereign, as Ephesians 1 says. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You're a believer because God is working out God's will. Now, the canons of Dort are answering something. We sometimes call them the five points of Calvinism, these doctrines of grace, but that's really a poor description because they're simply five replies to five points of protest against the Reformed faith. 
And the goal of that protest, that remonstrance as it's called, was to keep mankind determinative in the question of salvation. Now, some of that may have admirable wishes. Uh, In fact, I think some of those understandable goals and desires that drive that wish for us to decide whether we end up saved or not are anticipated by Paul. Is there injustice on God's part? He anticipates somebody's going to say, that's not fair. Why does he still find fault? He anticipates somebody's going to say, well, I can't square that with my conception of human freedom and human responsibility. Essentially, Paul's answer is too bad. The fact that we can't understand it or make it fit with our conception of those things does not give us the right to nullify the word of God, which says he is working out his purposes of election. Now, if you've spent time as an Arminian or you have sat under Arminian teaching, you're probably aware that there are certain ways that the inescapable fact of election uh, is dealt with by those who would prefer to keep man in the driver's seat with regard to salvation. Uh, The most basic, of course, is to ignore that question, skip over it or be dismissive or just say, well, everybody's got their own opinions and views and we don't need to get into it. But speaking more formally, one argument against the doctrine of the unconditional election of individuals to be saved in Christ is to say it's only a corporate election, that God chooses a nation or a church or a category, but then it's up to you and you alone as to whether you're going to enter that category. Now, at first glance, that seems plausible because it's true. There is a chosen people of Israel. The church is chosen and is the apple of God's eye. And we are under the headship of our mediator, Jesus Christ, the chosen or elect one, according to Isaiah. But the fact of corporate election does not argue against individual election. In fact, look again at Romans 9. What is Paul doing here? Paul is saying, look, after I've laid out the riches of the gospel in chapters 1 through 8, how bad we need it, how much Christ has done for us as the propitiation and as the second Adam and as our new life and as the source of the Spirit, why are most of the Jewish people whose Messiah this is and whose scriptures these things fulfill, why are most of them declining Christ? That's why in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he takes a detour into the deeper purposes of God to explain it. He says the explanation for that is not that the word of God has failed, verse 6, but rather there has always been the idea of individuals within the group who are the true recipients of the promise. It has never been just about Abraham's family. Not all Israel is Israel going all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac. So Paul's very purpose here is to talk about individual election. And indeed, when you look at corporate election like uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, sure, Malachi means that in a corporate way. But before those were two nations, they were two men, one of whom was loved and chosen for God's purposes and one of whom was rejected. It was individual. The second evasion of this is the idea that we have to address through door, the idea that God's election is somehow conditional on me. In particular, God sees something in me, maybe way in advance from eternity past, sees something in me that I'm going to do or decide, and therefore he elects me in response to me. 
Again, that sounds plausible at first because there are scriptures that speak about the foreknowledge of God. Romans 8.29, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 1 Peter chapter 1, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What this means then is God would have chosen you, God would have predestined you, God would have written you in Jesus' book of life from before the foundation of the world because he knew in advance that you were going to make the right decision. But what do the scriptures say? Well, the scriptures, when they speak about foreknowledge, are not speaking about correctly predicting future choices, but rather loving and caring about people. Not, I foreknew the thing that you would do that would make you worthy or correct, but I foreknew you. As Jesus puts it in John chapter 10, I know the sheep whom my Father has given me. I cared about them. I loved them. As we saw earlier, he loves us because he loves us. Not because we are actually secretly, retroactively in the driver's seat. No. God works all things according to his will and his pleasure. God is the cause and not the effect. Again, Romans 9 is negating this very idea that somehow our election is conditioned on us. Before they were born, before they did good or evil, so that God's purpose would stand. The older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul continues to strip out any excuse, any hint of the idea that God chose me because of me. And even besides the testimony and the meaning of Scripture, consider plain reason, brothers and sisters. Conditional election isn't really election. You know, think of it this way. We have elections in our country. Imagine if a presidential candidate decided for himself what the outcome of the election would be and then expected you to vote for him. You would say that's not much of an election. Election is an exercise of your choice and your will. Now, maybe you did it because you saw a snappy commercial or whatever, but the point is you are the elector. You are acting according to the counsel of your will when you pull the lever in the voting booth. So, too, when God elects, when God predestines, when God works all things according to his will and pleasure, you're talking about something else entirely if you can't grasp that that's election. So, we are elected and we are elected unconditionally. And to wrap it up, you might say, okay, why does it matter so much? Why do we care enough to argue about this, write books about it, or you know, preach a sermon series about this? Well, something that Brother Jonathan mentioned was this idea of boasting, of glorying or taking credit. We are stealing from God if we give ourselves credit for our own election. Now, maybe that sounds kind of abstract to you, and maybe that sounds weird, like I would never be that arrogant. Or, or Let me make it a little more personal, maybe. Here's how this sounds when we want the credit, when our feelings are hurt, when our pride is wounded. God, can I do anything good enough for you? Can I make one right decision? Can't I have say in one little thing. I mean, sure, I've sinned a lot. I've screwed up a lot of things. I've had so much misunderstanding and confusion, but at least I got one thing right, right? 
And the Lord's answer to you, believer, is, dear sinner, beloved in Christ, no. You have nothing except what I gave you. You have nothing apart from the providential grace of the Father restraining you from sin, apart from the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ buying your soul, apart from the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit changing who you are, formerly someone who was dead, you have nothing. That's what we mean by credit, glory, boasting, must go to God who deserves all worship and all crowns to be cast at his feet. But it also matters because of our security. We've been loved with an everlasting love, and that ought to make us feel secure. It's a shame that Reformed believers sometimes get insecure about their election because you can't see it. You have to infer it. The goal of passages like John 10 is to give you security, dear sheep of Christ. Unconditional election also shows us our God better, especially his grace and love. And unconditional election also leads to the right kind of evangelism. Yes, I said it. So often we're told, well, we can't believe what it appears to mean about election because that would kill evangelism. Well, your wires are loose somewhere else because if you understand unconditional election properly, that the Father is at work to accomplish his will, it allows you to do not only a uh, hopeful election, sorry, a hopeful evangelism that somebody's actually going to respond because God may well elect them, but also it takes the pressure off you to perform and not mess it up. The, the, the sweaty, desperate, salesman kind of election, evangelism is not what we are called to in Scripture, but simply to be faithful to our Savior. You can't mess it up if God has chosen someone. It's not because, oh, if you just prayed one more time, or if you just said that a little bit better, if you had just knocked on their door one more time, if it is ultimately up to the Lord, then your calling is only to be faithful, dear Christian, not to sweat the results. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because, of our purpose, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, removes the crushing weight, removes the fear of ruining God's plan. The outcome rests with God. So unconditional election allows us to be humble and worshipful, allows us to be confident in our converting God, allows us to be secure in the unchangeable plans of this sovereign God, allows us to be comforted by his love, allows us to be amazed by his grace. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Let's likewise, in view of the doctrine of election, be thankful and amazed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would praise and exalt you for your mighty works and for your perfect will. And we would take no credit to ourselves. Lord, we have nothing but your grace. Sustain us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I preach, let me make a brief announcement. I've been told by those uh, 
providing refreshments this evening that they're going to need about five minutes, just five minutes to uncover everything, get everything ready. So I know as you've passed by that table, you've already unconditionally elected certain things to go on your plate. And uh, that, that grace on that table seems to be irresistible, and you're all totally depraved, and so you want to rush to the table, but just give them, give them a few minutes, all right? R.C. Sproul once said, uh, I think that of all the five points of Calvinism, limited atonement is the most controversial. So as the host pastor this evening, when we were sitting at Vienna Coffee Shop and dealing out these assignments, I volunteered to take the task of defining and defending limited atonement. Because if someone's going to throw tomatoes at the preacher, it should be, you know, if it's going to be at my church, it should be me. And I say that because when you meet people in our culture, there's a lot of people that will tell you, I am a four-point Calvinist. And the L is the, always the one that they object to. It's always the one that concerns them and brings uh, an objection. And we're going to turn this, more, this evening to the central chapter in the literary format of the Pentateuch to, to draw our attention to atonement, because that's actually what God does through Moses as he wrote the first five books of the Bible. According to Michael Morales, who's a professor of Old Testament at Greenville Theological Seminary uh, in, in South Carolina, uh, when, when you look at the literary structure of the entire first five books of the Bible, what chapter is at the dead center? It's Leviticus chapter 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. Right? If you could say that there was one singular big idea in the first five books of the Bible, it's actually not judgment or wandering in the wilderness. It's atonement. Right? When, when you look at the chiastic stru structure of Genesis chapter 3 at the very center, in the midst of all of that judgment, is what? It's the promise that someone's going to be born of a woman without the help of a man, and he's going to crush the head of the dragon. So should it surprise us then that what God draws our attention to in the first five books of the Bible is atonement, it's redemption. So that's what we're looking at. We're going to look here in just a few moments after I pray. I'm going to focus on, on five particular verses there in Leviticus chapter 16, and we are going to uh, use that as the building blocks of our doctrine of atonement in the New Testament. So first, let me pray for us. I better grab my Bible first. You're going to need that if you want to preach. Let me first pray. Mighty Father, for the glory of your Son, Jesus, may uh, the Spirit of God illuminate the Word this evening. We thank you for the Word that we've already heard preached. We ask for your blessing to be continually upon the preachers this evening as we try to bring your word faithfully for the good of your people and for your glory. Amen. So we turn this evening to Leviticus chapter 16. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 and then jump ahead for the sake of time to verses 15 through 17. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Picking up in verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. So he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. 
no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think one of the problems, if I'm quite honest, with the doctrine of the limited, of limited atonement is the name. I think it's a doctrine that suffers not from a lack of biblical support, but rather from bad branding and marketing. Right? When you think about the acronym TULIP, uh, that sounds really nice. TULIP's a very beautiful, uh, beautiful flower. It looks really good on church, in st- church stained glass windows and on church logos. Uh, but I think it's, it's, a, it's better to call it particular atonement or definite atonement. I think either one of those would be better. But you try to take the L out and put one of those in, and it just you, know, you don't come up with really anything. It's just, it just becomes a, a, an acronym that means nothing, right? But let me just try to briefly, it's not so brief, sorry about that, but let me try to briefly define limited atonement. Limited atonement is not about the sufficiency or the power of Christ's blood in the redemption of sinners. It's about the limited application of redemption. His blood was certainly enough to pay for the sins of everyone, but ultimately he was only purchasing a particular definite group of people, those unconditionally elected for salvation. So it's, it's about purpose and not about power. I, mean, I think if you believe in total depravity and unconditional election, you must logically believe in particular atonement. It just makes good sense. So just let me paint you a picture here. Imagine you walk into a store, one of these really quaint, kind of long-lasting mom-and-pop shops in Blunt County, Tennessee. Imagine that you walk in there. None of the objects on the shelves jump into your cart. Now, whenever I take my two-year-old to Food Lion, it's, I turn around and it seems like objects have magically jumped in the cart, but he's dragged them in there, okay? So that's, that's not what happens. They don't jump off the shelves and into your basket or into your bag or your cart, right? They're totally enabled. They have no ability in and of themselves to do that. You elect them, right? You put them in there. They're chosen by you. You have elected, many of you, if you're, if you're like me, you try to make a list. Otherwise, a lot more is going to make it into your cart uh, before you go shopping anywhere, right? But you've elected to put these things in your cart solely based on your choice and your preference and not theirs. The items may or may not actually want to be in your cart. You don't know. You can't ask them, and it doesn't matter. You elected them. They had no say in the matter. Now imagine you walked into the, one of these beautiful, quaint, historic mom and pop shops with one billion U.S. dollars. Thanks to inflation, that doesn't have the purchasing power that it used to, but one billion U.S. dollars is still a lot of money. Still a lot of money. It's not like one of those countries where you put one billion in their currency and it's like a wheelbarrow and you can get a sandwich for that, right? That's not, it's still worth quite a bit. You have the sufficient funds with your cash. It's not on a debit card or it's not a line of credit. You have cash money in the suitcase, in the briefcase, right? on the pallet being dragged behind you. You have the sufficient funds to buy everything in the store, including all the shelving and the building itself. But that's not your plan. That's the purchasing power that you have, but that's not your purpose of going to the mom and pop shop. You have intended to purchase a definite list, a particular group of items. So the atonement made by Christ is only limited in its application and its efficacy, not its sufficiency. Does that make sense? He had a purpose when he came to die. He had a plan. He had a particular group of people, 
in mind. This is, this is the debate that's hundreds upon hundreds of years old. You've already heard it mentioned tonight, the Canons of Dort. One of the articles of the Canons of Dort say that this death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. So the, these Calvinists off, authoring this document, the Canons of Dort, Dort, they acknowledge that there is an aspect of sufficiency when it comes to atonement. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about limited atonement. They even went on to explain why his, uh, his blood is of infinite value, because he's the perfect man and he's the holy son of God. And it's important to put this on your radar because it's a common straw man that you'll hear from people, uh, well-meaning Christians. They, they don't, they're not trying to be malicious. They, don't, they just don't understand that they're making a straw man. But they assert that you as a reformed person believe that Jesus' blood is weak or limited in redeeming power. And most of you probably don't. If you do, please find your pastor and talk to them. We'll set you straight. But that's not what we argue. That's not what we articulate in our doctrines of grace. We don't believe that he's limited in redeeming power because it's not about purchasing power at all. Now, we see the plan of atonement. We see how atonement works typified in the Old Testament ordinances, particularly the Day of Atonement, which we just read about. What is, what is said in Leviticus chapter 16? What does God explain to Moses that then he's, there, you know, he has to turn around and explain it to Aaron? I don't know about you, but if, if I was Moses, I would have been tempted to say, can I just bring Aaron here and you talk to him too? Like, I want to make sure we get all of this squared away. Because Moses has just watched his two nephews, his, son, his, his uh, brother Aaron's sons, die because they got this wrong. But we're reminded in Leviticus chapter 16 that not just anyone can approach. God is very particular in the details of the Day of Atonement and of, and of all these various sacrifices and feasts. We're reminded in Leviticus chapter 16 of the presence of God in this act of atonement and in the seriousness of the matter. And what does he say to Moses? He doesn't say, look, your brother Aaron the high priest is going to do this and he's going to make it possible for the people to choose atonement. He's going to do these things, and by sacrificing these things and those things, it's going to provide a path for the possibility of atonement. No, what's described is Aaron is actually and definitely, by following these particular instructions of God, he's making atonement. There's a high priest. There's a blood being shed. There's an offering being made. This sets up the framework to understand Christ as the, the once and for all, the final high priest who offers up himself, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. His body is offered up as an offering, and his blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 16 of Leviticus chapter 16 makes it very clear who the atonement is made for. Did you catch it? He doesn't say, look, you're just going to make atonement for whoever wants it. This will accomplish atonement just in a broad general sense for the whole world. Now, there was a particular people, an elect covenant people, that atonement was made for. I love verse 17. It describes that what the high priest is doing on the Day of, on day of Atonement on Yom Kippur is he is, uh, he is making these sacrifices according to the instructions of God. And what is being accomplished? His household. His household is atoned for. And all the assembly of Israel. Friends, that's exactly what happens in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His household. He makes atonement for his house. He makes atonement for the covenant elected people of God, the special particular people of God. 
As I mentioned earlier, in, in the Westminster Confession actually describes it this way, that these Old Testament ordinances, they point to Jesus. They're, they're not just placeholders. It's not like, just do this for a while until Jesus shows up. No, this is all foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus and his work. So it's important to keep this in mind. This sets the framework for the New Testament. Aaron, the high priest, enters alone into this holy place. He alone is there making these sacrifices. And the result is not the possibility of atonement, but definite atonement. And that's what happened when Jesus goes to the cross. He's utterly alone. There in the presence of God, offering up his body, shedding his blood, making atonement, definite atonement for a particular people. We see this in John's literature in the New Testament. We see uh, this doctrine of limited atonement, this doctrine of particular atonement working itself out in several passages written by John. Uh, we see in John 6, not to steal any thunder from AJ, who's about to preach from that passage, I believe, but Jesus makes it very clear that he came to save who? A particular group of people. Who are those people? It's those people given to him by his father. John chapter 10, Jesus makes it very clear. He lays down his life for who? The sheep. The Bible describes goats and it describes sheep. He doesn't say, look, I'm going to die for the goats and the sheep. And I'm going to call out to them and only the sheep are going to show up when I call to them. No, he's making particular atonement. He's not laying down his life for the goats. He's laying down his life for the flock, for the sheep. Now, in evangelism, we have no idea when someone is not a professing believer at the time, we have no idea if they're ultimately going to shake out to be a goat or a lamb or, or what. We have no idea. That's not our business. It's God's business. We simply make the call, and if they respond and walk with the Lord, oh, they're, they're a sheep. John chapter 11, verse 52, he makes it very clear that he died to gather the sheep scattered abroad makes it very clear in the Gospel of John that there's sheep of this fold and of that fold, of Israel and of the Gentiles, and he's dying for both to make them one flock. Revelation 5, chapter 9 says that Christ, by his blood, ransomed people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. I, my understanding of that word nation there is that it's people group. It's not like America, right? We have uh, Canadians in here and South Africans and New Zealanders. And, uh, you know, it's beautiful. You know, New Zealand just got beat by South Africa yesterday, and yet they're in here in this room. Uh, and despite the loss in the World Cup, they're worshiping together. You know, that's the beauty of Jesus, right? But in all of those different nations, there's lots and lots of people groups. I mean, you could throw a rock in my neighborhood and hit a different people group in the multiple houses around my neighborhood, right? Right? It's not talking about skin tone or the country that you live in. It's a very particular meaning. Jesus is saving people, families, individuals from every single one of those different categories described in Revelation chapter 5. But then we also see Matthew and Peter and Paul weighing in on the same matter. Matthew says, and he writes, it's Jesus saying it in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And he says in the beginning of his gospel account, an angel says that Jesus will save who? His people, his people, and connecting the dots to John chapter 6, who are his people? The people that the Father gives to him. Hebrews chapter 9 describes Christ accomplishing atonement, not providing the possibility of atonement by his blood, but actually accomplishing atonement, not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood. And in that passage, maybe Luke, maybe Paul, we don't know who the author is, but they say this, Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them 
from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. Notice it doesn't say it provides the possibility of their redemption. No, the blood of Jesus, the death of Christ, it brings that to pass. It brings about redemption for those who are called. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus gave himself up for who? The church, a particular definite people. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 28, that Jesus obtained the church by his blood. You kind of get the we could continue to go on and on. First Peter chapter two verse twenty four, echoing Isaiah chapter fifty three verse five. By his wounds you are healed. Not hey, he made the sacrifice and you might be healed. You have the chance to be healed. How many of you have been sick lately and you go to the doctor? How many of you want to hear, I will heal you. I have healed you. The injection I just gave you, you're healed. You prefer to hear that over, hey, we're going to roll the dice here. We sure hope this works itself out. We'll see one day. See, this is a definite atonement. It's a particular atonement. There's clearly a certain group of people that God has set his affection upon. James did such an excellent job of drawing our attention to Romans 9 and showing us that that's true. Jesus came and died for us. He shed his blood for our atonement to reconcile us to God, not to make it possible that we could be reconciled, but to actually accomplish it. Now, you might say, well, what about John 3.16 and other verses like it that, just, that seem to be talking in, in terms of all? God loved the whole world and, and, and so, so that everyone, right? Let's, it doesn't say that everyone is going to be saved. It says the believing ones might have eternal life. And who believes? Those who are unconditionally elected by God. Those who hear the call of God and the effectual calling is worked into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And once again, not to step on AJ's toes, but those who are drawn by his irresistible grace. Zacharias Ursinus, the principal author of the Heidelberg Catechism, said that Christ's atoning work on the cross was for the whole world as it respects the sufficiency of satisfaction which he made, but not as it respects the application thereof. So the way that we understand passages like John 3.16 is that when, uh, when he's talking about uh, all, when, they, when biblical authors use the term all people, that God seems to have this desire that all would be saved, he's talking about all types of people. This is about Revelation 5.9, that God is saving all different types of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. The sufficiency of his blood is unlimited. The scope and breadth is unlimited. The free offer of the gospel is unlimited. We share the gospel with all people. All people are to hear it. But the application and the efficacy of Christ's blood is limited to the elect, to the invisible eschatological church of Jesus Christ. Uh, beloved, listen, when your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, said on the cross, it is finished, he really meant it. It really was accomplished. He really did secure eternal redemption for those who are called. Those who are called to receive the eternal promises and inheritance of God. I think this should spur us to evangelism. This, despite what other people would say, this actually, does not, this actually doesn't disincentivize evangelizing. Because when we give people the free offer of the gospel, we're not telling them, here's the gospel. Maybe Jesus provided a way for you. He provided the possibility of your atonement. No, we can, we can declare to them with boldness and with certainty, Jesus laid down his life for his flock. Hear his gospel call and know that Jesus died for his people. 
we can speak with certainty because we know there's a sureness. We know that there's a sureness in the security of that eternal redemption accomplished by the Son. The doctrine of limited atonement should give us a sense of gratitude that we know the Lord because it reminds us that when Jesus died, he didn't die indiscriminately. It it wasn't just this blanket, let's just walk into the store and just close our eyes and just start raking stuff off the shelves. No, he died for us specifically and intentionally. He had his people, the elect, the church, in mind when he said it is finished. He was not merely stating that an opportunity for your salvation had been supplied. He was stating that atonement, our redemption, our reconciliation, it was accomplished. And this does not make him cold or unloving to the lost. It makes him mighty to save. Because those that he intended to save were definitely and particularly atoned for. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father. Uh, We thank you that your spirit makes use of the word preached, and we bless your name that atonement was, in fact, accomplished by Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit applies his work to your people in your due timing. We offer you our thanks, and I ask for your hand to be upon my brothers as they continue to preach the doctrines of grace this evening. Amen. John chapter 6, 35 to 51 will be our text this evening. John chapter 6, 35, 51. Hear now the word of our God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The sins of reading of the Word of God, let's ask His blessing now upon that word in a moment of prayer. Our great God, we ask very simply this evening that Your Word would be a lamp unto our feet, that it would be a light unto our path. For we know on the basis of your word that it is truly only in your light that we see light. 
Grant it to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You must be born again. Those were the words of Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And you're no doubt familiar with those words as they in many ways took center stage in the, the mass evangelism movements of the 20th century. They were repeated frequently on the lips of men like Billy Graham. And indeed, these words do make for an effective evangelistic call to faith. As our Lord makes clear in John chapter 3, the new birth is the only way to enter the kingdom of God. It's the only way to have real communion with Jesus Christ. It's the only hope for eternity. But if all of these things are so, I hope you believe that they are, then we ought necessarily then to ask how we are born again. If the new birth is the difference between heaven and hell, then I'm sure that you will agree with me that this is a matter of inestimable significance. And even if evangelical Christians are of one mind about the necessity of the new birth, it is simply a matter of fact that there is a long-standing disagreement as to how we are born again. For example, you will surely find many evangelical Christians out there today who would say that the new birth comes about something like this. God in His grace calls all men, all women everywhere to believe on Christ that they might be born again. However, in order to do so, man must use his unaided free will to cooperate with the grace of God by choosing to express his faith. Those who do so will be born again, and those who by a contrary act of their free will resist the call of God will be condemned for their unbelief. And you see, in this accounting of things, the initiative lies with who? It lies with man. The choice is his. He can go one way or the other. He just needs to make up his mind, believe or resist. Believe that you might be born again. Many people speak in this way, but the question tonight is, is it biblical? And it's not. You don't even have to leave John chapter 3 in order to determine that it is not. Nicodemus there expresses bewilderment to Jesus about the call to be born again. What does Jesus say? He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born again. Do you see, brothers and sisters, according to Jesus... The new birth requires a sovereign act of God's Holy Spirit. The initiative lies with the Lord. Only when He has done His work are we even able to believe. And He tells us that He will do that redeeming work when and where He wants to do it. And this is the doctrine which is commonly called to, excuse me, commonly referred to as the doctrine of irresistible grace, or uh, to use the language of the Westminster Confession, effectual calling. 
This doctrine is present, as we've already alluded to in John chapter 3, and it's present in John chapter 6, 35 to 51, which I've taken as my text tonight. So the way that I want to spend the time allotted to me this evening is to take a brief look at John 6, 35 to 51, and then to simply draw some doctrinal lessons from that passage. First of all, then, let us quickly tonight survey our text. To begin with, we take note of the fact that the verses which we have read this evening take place in the aftermath of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. While the other three Gospels do tell that story, they, they largely focus on the disciples' reaction to that miracle, while John is especially interested in the response of the crowds. And what was the response of the crowd? Well, initially they were amazed we would find that if we were, had time tonight to read all of John chapter 6. They were so impressed with Jesus' work at the feeding of 5,000 that verse 15 tells us that they really, what they wanted to do was to make him king and to make him king by force. However, as Jesus did so often over the course of his ministry, he quickly moves as he begins to teach to, to dissuade the crowds of the misunderstandings which were baked into their initial reaction. Very bluntly, Jesus explains to the crowd in verse 26 of this chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So, so Jesus knew that the, that the men and women standing before him were more impressed with the meal that they had been given than they were with the giver of the meal. And, and to correct this failure to prioritize, Jesus tells them that they need, to, they need to quit working for bread and start doing the works of God. As a result of that assertion, they want to know, what, what does it mean to do the works of God? And Jesus explains in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And it's really this exhortation in the text which provides the context for the passage that we have read. Where Jesus is teaching the crowd who it is that He is. That they might indeed believe in Him. And so Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what matters isn't how full your belly is, because eventually you'll be hungry again. What matters is that you feed upon the bread of life, which brings eternal satisfaction. But... Jesus goes on in verse 36. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Here's the crisis in the text. The crowds had marveled at the feeding of the 5,000. They had sat under the preaching of Jesus Christ himself as he held himself up before them as the proper object of faith. And yet they did not believe. Why? 
How could it be? How could they fail to respond when they had seen so much and when they had heard so much? A message that had no error, a better sermon than you will hear preached tonight, they had heard on that day. So how is it that they could fail to believe? Well, Jesus provides an insight into this quandary in verse 37, saying, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The implication is that if they have not come, if they have not believed, it is because they have not been given by the Father to the Son. Now, some might think that's a harsh response from Jesus, but as we observe in verses 39 and 40, Jesus freely promises to raise up every last person who looks on the Son and believes in Him unto eternal life. The promise of the gospel stands open. Believe on Christ and live, but not all believe. And the crowd's response proves it. In verse 41, we are told that the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now that Jesus has drawn a sharp dividing line between those who belong to him and those who don't, they're suddenly less impressed than they were just moments prior. That they, In fact, as we see there in the text, stoop so low in their response to Jesus that they began to cast aspersions on Jesus' family. Don't we know this guy's mom and papa? Who is he to say that he's the bread of life come down from heaven? Jesus doesn't budge. Jesus doesn't alter his message. He does not change course in response to this criticism. Verses 43 to 45 shows this. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets... And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And some, if someone comes to Jesus, it is because the Father draws him. And those whom the Father draws will come without fail. And then our passage ends with a rearticulation of Jesus' identity as the bread of life which came down from heaven to give life to those who feed on Him. Much more we could say there. We don't have time. That's our survey of the text, though. So the question is, what doctrinal lessons can we take away from the account which we've just considered? Well, four short lessons. First of all, the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is taught in our text It's taught throughout the New Testament. As Jesus explained to the crowd who was before Him that day, it is those who do the will of the Father by looking to the Son and believing who are granted eternal life. Anything less is insufficient for salvation. It doesn't matter where your idol of choice is a false god or your material possessions or your flesh. Trusting in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, will lead you to hell. As we read later, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. The second point we want to consider is the fact that the only way to have faith in Jesus Christ 
is to be drawn by the Father. The only way to have faith in Jesus Christ is to be drawn by the Father. Our second doctrinal lesson is far more controversial than the first, but I hope that you see that it's no less scriptural. Jesus says plainly that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. And why is this the case? Well, place this sermon in the context of the others. It is necessarily the case because as we have already heard tonight, we are naturally depraved. We do not naturally seek after God. We are born dead in sin. And so if we have any hope of new life, we need the initiative and the power to come from outside of ourselves. Unfortunately, there is a power. Again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So as we hear the outward call of God through the preaching of the gospel, the Father is sovereignly calling His elect inwardly that they might believe the message that they are hearing. So the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to have faith in Jesus Christ is to be drawn by the Father. The third point here is that the Father draws sinners to Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now here we recall the conversation which we've referenced between Jesus and Nicodemus. The Spirit is not mentioned explicitly here in the passage we read in John chapter 6. But I hope that it's obvious that these two passages are not to be divorced from one another. Instead, we may, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, deduce that the way in which the Father draws the elect to His Son is through the work of the Spirit, who, like the wind, goes where He wishes. As Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, paragraph 1 puts it, God calls those who are predestined unto life by His Word and Spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. That is a triune God saving an elect people. This is the fulfillment of the promise made to God's people in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 where the Lord promised to His old covenant people in that day, the coming of the new covenant, I will put my spirit within you. So the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to have faith in Jesus Christ is to be drawn by the Father. The Father draws sinners to Christ through the working of the Spirit. Our final point of application, doctrinal consideration, is that this work is always efficacious and it cannot be resisted. The text tells us that all who have seen and heard from the Father will, in fact, do, in fact, come to Christ. There is no tentativeness in the Lord's remarks. This is not a maybe, hope so, hope it happens. All that the Father gives come. And this is consonant with the picture painted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where we read of that unbreakable chain of salvation, wherein those who have been predestined will be effectually called. So we read, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. 
contrary to the Roman belief that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can be resisted as it was expressed and administered through the sacraments. Contrary, the opinion held by many evangelicals that the Lord's call and the work of the Spirit can be resisted. We read here of a salvation which is planned in eternity and accomplished in time without fail. And, and many worry that such an understanding of God's sovereign working does damage to man's will. But it does no such thing. Without the triune application of redemption, which we have already discussed, man is wholly incapable of willing the good. His will is only free to choose those things which entice his fallen nature. Only when God transforms the will of the sinner through the working of the Spirit is this hopeless situation overturned. I will uh, continue the trend here tonight by making reference to the canons of Dort, which are very helpful in explaining this point. There we read that it is by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit that God also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is circumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that like a good tree it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good works. So You see, when we speak of the doctrine of irresistible grace, we are not talking about a trampling of man's supposed free will. Rather, we are talking about a transformation of man's will through the work of regeneration brought about by the Holy Spirit that we might indeed repent and believe. And all of this follows quite naturally if you've been tracking with the development of the doctrines of grace tonight. As sinners, we are depraved. We cannot save ourselves. Our hope of salvation stems from the fact that God elected for Himself a people for which He sent His Son to die an atoning death. To speak of God's irresistible grace then is simply to speak of the application of those benefits to the elect. As the eminent Reformed theologian John Murray put it in his discussion of effectual calling, calling is an act of God and of God alone. This fact should make us keenly aware how dependent we are upon the sovereign grace of God in the application of redemption. If calling is the initial step in our becoming actual partakers of salvation, the fact that God is its author forcefully reminds us that the pure sovereignty of God's work in salvation is not suspended at the point of application any more than at the point of design and objective. In other words, what the Lord planned to do in eternity, He most surely does. And He ends the quote in this way, We may not like this doctrine, but if so, it is because we are averse to the grace of God 
and wish to arrogate for ourselves the prerogative that belongs to God. And he says, we know where that disposition had its origin. So brothers and sisters, I close tonight by insisting with the the great evangelists of yesteryear that you must be born again. And the way to receive that new birth is by the working of the Holy Spirit through whom the Father draws sinners to Jesus Christ for salvation. So believe on Jesus Christ who died for sins and was raised to give eternal life. The gospel call through the preaching of the word goes out to all men, even if only some are effectively drawn. So it is incumbent upon you tonight, if you're hearing these words, that you would repent and believe. If you have never believed in this way, then I urge you to do so now. And if you have, then give thanks, recognizing that it is not of your own volition, It wasn't up to you. Instead, it was the gracious gift of God to whom belongs all the praise and glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it was not left up to us because otherwise, if it were, it would would have failed to have happened. We would not be saved. But you are good and you are gracious. Lord, and you transform our wills as you work within us through your means of grace, that we might understand that which was previously baffling to us, that we might believe that which we once hated, and that we might know a God against whom once we had rebelled. So we pray tonight that you would teach us daily to give you the glory for the great salvation which we know in Jesus Christ, in whose name it is we pray. Amen. Alas, I left the Dort's, the cannons of Dort at home. I'm sorry. I repent. Uh, no. Um, but I did bring some Greek with me. Uh, a little bit of, you must be birthed again. It is passive voice. When was, uh, for, for the ladies in the audience, when was the last time that a birth was planned? was the choice. Just by virtue of the birth alone, it is not something that is of free will. A baby does not choose, oh, now I'm going to be birthed. It happens just by the figure that Jesus uses. Okay, so that, was, that one being put aside. Okay, now I'm not sure if you noticed, oh, a few things. Christ the King church. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. And women, especially, thank you for fixing. Um, I wanted to say that. Um, So thank you. Um, I am, my wife said, put a pretty bow on it. Um, I I said, um, well, I I thought to myself, when did anything I ever do was pretty, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, and, and I'll try to Clean up. Hear God's word. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the many gifts that you have given us. This is something we could not earn or deserve. It is all from first to last of you. We thank you that, and I thank you, for these, these brothers, these friends who have, have brought out many, many points that, that I could not in ways that I, I wouldn't even think of. Lord, I thank you for this, this gift of, of each man bringing the word in, in a way that, that just shows your sovereign hand uh, just speaking to us and speaking to our hearts. Speak to us now. We want to hear, we want to know, we want to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you could lose your salvation, you would. That's not me. I, I have to make sure I'm being honest. That was John MacArthur. And I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not necessarily in Johnny Mac's camp all the time. But man, that was good. <laughs> I think that just really summarizes it. If you could lose your salvation, you would. I mean, I would on Mondays, wouldn't you? It's, this, is, this is the perseverance of the saints. Um, and no, it's, it's not waiting till this last homily or whatever it's supposed to be. It's not making it all the way through this. Um, but but I, I, I wanted to point out a few things. Did you notice how each of the four, well, five of us, have been stepping all over each other in the verses we pick. That's, that's because we call them the, the, the doctrines of grace, but is the, it is the doctrine of grace. It is one doctrine that we see. I mean, it is one chord that is just that, that from, from the T to the U to the L to the I to the P, all of that is weaving in and out because that's how God wanted it to be. I think if I went back to that clever saying by Johnny Mac, I would, I would say, I would emphasize this, however, because I, I think the, the issue in all of this is do you have a man-centered salvation or do you have a God-centered salvation? That's the issue. That's the issue within all of it. Is this something that, that you can gin up? Is it because you're smart enough or clever enough or you read all the right books? Is that why you become a Christian? 
is if that's the case, then there are a lot, billions of people who would be in hell tonight. But God, by his grace, is so big and so loving and so powerful that by his grace, he brings people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, he brings them alive, and he does it all by faith, through grace, by grace, through faith, for his glory and for our good. But the point is that if you could lose your salvation, you would, because salvation isn't about us, even though it includes us. That's what Paul says at the beginning of this letter to the Christians at Corinth. Your gifts aren't, your gifts aren't from you, therefore they don't exist for you building your own reputation. And by extension, where did you get your gifts from? You got your gifts because of your salvation. Your salvation did not come from you. It's especially true of your salvation. It's important to observe this, especially in our hyper-individualistic society in, in which people um, have this sort of idea that no one can take my salvation away from me. It's a salvation that's a gift. You didn't earn it. We didn't make it. It was, it was secured by the Lord. It is his gift to us, and we don't deserve it. In many regards, this whole hyper-individualism reminds me of the way that, that, we, that we attach the word my, my salvation, my choice, my whatever. It, it's, it's like what was said in the Screwtape letters that the, uh, well, here's, here's how C.S. Lewis teases it out. He says, the humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. We produce this sense of ownership, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not, not to notice the, difference, the different senses of the possessive pronoun. The finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country, all the way to my God. But since salvation is of the Lord, we can live confidently, knowing that God will work salvation in us, and we will continue to become increasingly Christ-like, even, or should I say, especially in the midst of our trials. Now, let me get to you some, some verses because I think the word speaks far better than I can about this subject. Turn to Isaiah 46, verses 3 through 4. Does, does God preserve his saints? Here's what the prophet Isaiah says in verses 3 through 4. 
Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Salvation is from the Lord. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And Jesus's earthly brother, Jude, writes now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless and before the presence of his glory with great joy. And one of those verses that, Nate, I think you stumbled all over this one, was my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, why does this matter? This matters in an age where where people are, are deconstructing their faith. No? Isn't that why this matters? When you have friends, you have loved ones, you have sons, you have daughters who are walking away from the faith, you must know that Jesus will not let them go if they are his. That's why this matters. This is, this is supposed to give you great comfort and great confidence so that you can live a life where you are not crippled by the fear of what might happen, remembering that their story is not over yet. How, how, how did Jesus say it? I will by no means cast them out. See, this is, this is the beauty and, and I think in, in certain sense that we need to hold on to the beauty that we see here in, the, in this perseverance of the saints. And, and, uh, and before I, I leave, just two things that it, it seems that even when we say perseverance of the saints, isn't that centering it around us? around what we do? Because it's actually God preserving us. And yet there's another sense because we are supposed to persevere through trials. This is what we read in places like James chapter 1. There's another sense in which the perseverance of the saints is also true. Both are true. And that's what gave me a bit of pause about talking about this, this topic. Because when you talk about it 
for long enough, it's very easy to get yourself all spun around. But these were just a few of the 40 verses that speak to this reality. This doesn't mean that we have a carefree calling. I, I, I think that, that some people can have that, that misapprehension, that, that if, if, uh, if the perseverance or the preservation of the saints, whichever label you're choosing, if that's, if that's true, then, then it's all easy. None of this is easy. Jesus said that we must carry our cross that we must follow like him, but we are also given this, this great hope that I've always found dear from the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and I'll end here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to, uh, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The thing I've always liked to point out to people is that the grace that saves us equips us. It equips us to where we might live a life that perseveres so that we might be preserved by our Savior. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are, you are showing us through your word that none of this hinges on us and our cleverness. That, that from first to last, the only thing that we contribute to this is our sin but the rest is your grace, you pursuing us, you coming after us, you keeping us secure. I thank you, Lord, for such a big faith that it seems like you're just swimming in an ocean as you talk about it. Lord, I ask that these doctrines of grace would propel us to people all around us, to people who are far from Jesus, that we will have greater confidence knowing that you are in control and that we can't mess up evangelism because it's not about us, it's about you. I thank you and praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.